Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The Department of Health and Human Services contraception and sterilization coverage mandate has been the source of great controversy, yet many people know little about it. Today's guest, Hilary Burns, an attorney with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, sheds light on this topic by describing what the mandate is, the religious liberty concerns it presents, and how it has been challenged in the federal courts. She then explains the Obama administration's accommodation to the mandate and why the Little Sisters of the Poor argued it did not adequately address their religious liberty concerns. Burns also discusses the Trump administration's exemption to the mandate, as well as the legal challenges it faces moving forward. Well, good morning, Hillary. How are you doing this morning? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I was wondering if we could start out this morning by uh, by having you give our audience uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of your background, uh, specifically talk about your education and the work you're doing with the USCCB. Sure. So I'm an attorney uh, by trade, and um, I have been working for the Bishops Conference for close to six years now, basically since early 2012. And before that, I was in private practice working at a large law firm in Washington, D.C. Before that, I worked for the U.S. Department of Justice for a couple of years in the Civil Rights Division there. Wow, so you've got a lot of really good background with government um, and bringing that experience to the USCCB. That's great. Yep, and right now I serve as the lead staffer to the Bishop's Committee for Religious Liberty. So I've been doing that work for for the whole time that I've been here. Well, that's a great segue into our conversation today. So, so in our podcast today, we're going to be talking about the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, uh, its contraception and sterilization coverage mandate, otherwise known as the HHS mandate, which we'll probably refer to it numerous times in this podcast. So I was wondering if you could start off telling us what is the HHS mandate, who implemented it, and why was it implemented? Sure. So the HHS mandate was originally announced back in 2011 by the Obama administration, and it's been a series of regulations from the federal government, um, more specifically the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That's where we get the HHS from. And it requires virtually all employers in the U.S. to cover contraceptives, abortion-inducing drugs and devices, as well as sterilization in their health plans. And it was, um, like I mentioned, it's, it was originally implemented by the Obama administration, but it's been amended by the Trump administration. And um, I think it's important to kind of point out um, or remember that Congress did not mandate that this coverage when it passed the Affordable Care Act back in 2010. So what Congress did was it allowed HHS to define what constituted preventive services under the Affordable Care Act. And so HHS then decided to include contraceptives and these other items under the guise of preventive services. So that's basically how we got the mandate via a federal regulation. Do you have any idea why HHS made or added contraception and sterilization to the list of preventive to the list of preventive care? 
what HHS kind of did was um, outsource, I guess, this decision of what constituted preventive services to an entity called the Institute um, of Medicine and the IOM. And so what they said is that um, basically for women's health um, purposes, these contraceptives needed to be covered because women were paying more um, in their insurance plans for for these um, for these drugs and devices, and so they said basically that this was necessary for women's health, essentially. Um, even though at the time, somewhere close to 90% of employers were already covering contraceptives and health plans, so um, there it really was being covered by most most employers even back then. Right. So was the Institute of Medicine's action, was this the first time that the federal government ever mandated um, that contraception and sterilization be covered? That's right. So it was the first time the federal government did. Before, we had a series of state contraceptive mandates right. in various states, but a lot of those had um, pretty robust religious exemptions or they allowed other ways for employers to opt out of being covered by those mandates. But this was the first time that the federal government actually stepped in and said, this coverage has to be mandated in all, uh, virtually all um, health plans with a pretty narrow religious exemption. What moral or other challenges does the mandate present? So the, the mandate um, really presents a lot of moral challenges, um, mainly because of, of what's covered. Obviously, um, with Catholic teaching, um, we object to, um, you know, contraceptive sterilization and, of course, um, drugs and devices that can cause an early abortion. And so that's what's being, you know, required to be covered in health plans. So. Catholic employers and several other Christian employers in particular don't want to be involved in you know, that process of um, facilitating coverage of these items in their health plans because they get to decide you know, what's in their health plans and they, they just don't want to be involved in, um, in covering things that go against their moral teaching. Right. And I think one particular aspect of that, of this whole mandate is just the amount of the fines um, that kick in if you don't provide this coverage. So if you, for example, as an employer provide excellent health care and you decide to exclude one drug or device such as Ella, which is known as the week after pill, right. if you exclude that, you're going to face fines of $100 per employee per day. So with quick math, that comes to $36,500 per employee per year. Um, and so just the fines themselves present a level of, of coercion really on employers um, that if they don't do this, then they're going to face astronomical fines. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the definition of church or definition of religious employer that... Um, HHS used in talking in, in identifying exemptions to the mandate. Sure. So what HHS provided was uh, at the outset was this very narrow exemption for religious employer uh, religious employers, which basically came down to houses of worship. Um, when you looked at the criteria that um, 
that they they set out in this kind of four part test. Um, it basically boiled down to, you know, churches, uh, mosques, and synagogues would basically be the only types of entities that would be able to take advantage of that religious exemption. And it was a full exemption. They didn't have to, um, you know, provide the coverage at all um, or, you know, do what's called the accommodation, which came about a little bit later that applied to other religious nonprofits with religious exemptions. And the the accommodation is a little bit more complicated. Um, So we'll get into that. Happy to explain that (laughs) if you'd like. Most people are at least aware of the company Hobby Lobby, although there were others. But Hobby Lobby challenged the mandate in the federal courts, and ultimately it went to the Supreme Court. So I was wondering if you could tell us, what was Hobby Lobby's argument in their case? So Hobby Lobby, just to give a little bit of background, they're a a retail chain of arts and crafts stores around the country. They're owned and operated by an evangelical Christian family. And so they're, they have that set out in their bylaws that they're run by a set of Christian principles. They're closed on Sundays. They're not publicly traded. They're owned by, by a family. And so they're, they're privately owned. And so what they um, objected to is the coverage of drugs and devices that can cause an early abortion. And so they did not object to the other um, contraceptives that were covered um, under the mandate. So... And that's a, that's an important is, clarification too. I, I just want to make sure everybody that our audience is aware of that. Their Hobby Lobby wasn't against birth control per se, but simply against um, medications that could act as abortifacients. Correct. Correct. Yes. So things like Plan B or Ella, the week after pill, those kinds of things. And so what they did was they. Um, they they sued because they were facing around $475 million a year in fines wow. if they didn't comply with the mandate, so close to half a billion dollars in fines. So what they did was they sued under both the U.S. Constitution, so the Free Exercise Clause, for example, and Free Speech Clause, and they also sued under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, and that's a federal law that applies to the federal government's actions in particular here. So um, so they made claims under both the Constitution and, and the federal RIFRA statute, um, basically saying this violates our religious exercise and um, the federal government is not doing this in a way um, that respects, you know, essentially our religious beliefs. So what did Hobby Lobby win in their case? So they... Um, you know, they ended up going all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they won essentially a permanent injunction against the the uh, the federal government from from enforcing this mandate on them. The court ruled as to closely held corporations, so um, so Hobby Lobby as well as other um, family owned, you know, and operated businesses. And so what the court said was that the mandate violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as to these closely held corporations that have religious objections to participating in the mandate. That's what they won was um, the federal government cannot enforce the mandate in that form on, against them. just want to kind of go a little further on this closely held corporation. So what 
entities did the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision apply to, and which do they not? Which which entities does it not apply to? Sure. So there were dozens of uh, family-owned for-profit businesses that did sue against the the mandate. There was a cabinet maker in Pennsylvania owned by a Mennonite family. Uh, there were uh, several others before the court, um, and they were able to show that they were run by you know these these Christian principles that included respect for the sanctity of human life, for example. And so um, what the court said is, you know, we're leaving publicly traded corporations for another day. We're not getting into that. Those aren't before the court. So the only entities that were before the court were these for-profit family-owned businesses with religious objections. And so that's why the court kind of limited its ruling to just those types of entities and said they could exercise religious freedom and will we'll leave you know, publicly held or traded corporations for another day. Are you aware, are, have any publicly traded corporations challenged this at all? I, I haven't heard of any, but do you know of any? No, I don't know of any. And HHS actually indicated that they are not aware, at least um, in October of 2017, they indicated they're not aware of any publicly traded entities that have objections to contraceptive coverage or that have um, challenged the mandate. All right. So uh, a little earlier, you mentioned the accommodation. So let's let's move on to that. Um, so in response to various religious liberty and other challenges, an accommodation to the HH, HHS mandate was both proposed and implemented. So I was wondering, can you tell us what was or what is the accommodation? Sure. So the accommodation was proposed in response a lot of pushback that the Obama administration received when it tried to roll out the original version of the mandate with the narrow religious exemption for houses of worship that I mentioned. Um, So what the Obama administration did is, is they said, okay, well, we're going to provide what we're calling an accommodation for religious nonprofits that have religious objections to, um, to the mandate, and so, but they don't qualify for the full religious exemption. So, we think of uh, groups like Catholic hospitals, schools, or universities; those types of employers who are faith-based but um, are not houses of worship themselves. So, what they would have to do under the accommodation is notify their insurance company, their health insurance company, or HHS that they don't want to provide contraceptive coverage then the insurance company is supposed to offer the coverage and not charge the employer higher premiums. Uh, But a number of nonprofits, including the Little Sisters of the Poor and many others, argue that this is still requiring them to be involved in the process of facilitating things that go against Catholic teaching. So what they're saying is basically their health plans are being hijacked by this new requirement to facilitate contraceptives. So the accommodation didn't satisfy a lot of folks with religious objections to to the mandate. And actually, the Little Sisters of the Poor is where uh, it's going to go next. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that because, um, you know, 
various groups, including the Little Sisters of the Poor, maintain that the accommodation didn't adequately address the religious liberty challenges. So I was wondering if you could go a little more deeper into what exactly the Little Sisters were arguing uh, in their case, and, and how was it resolved, so to speak, at the Supreme Court? Sure. So the Little Sisters were saying, you know, we're still being forced to, um, you know, be involved in this process of, by, by way of um, providing health insurance to our employees, our plans are being taken over by, uh, by this new requirement from the federal government to facilitate contraceptives. And so what they were saying is they don't want to be forced to conscript someone else to do essentially the dirty work of right. providing contraceptives. You know, if they can't do it, they don't want to then hire the hitman essentially <laughs> to do this work that they, they can't themselves do. They just don't want to be involved with that. And so, um, so they sued the federal government as well. They were facing somewhere around $70 million a year in fines, little sisters were, um, and said, you know, this, this so-called accommodation violates their right to the free exercise of religion. And they said this constitutes a heavy burden on their religious exercise. And that's one of the prongs of the, the test under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is it, does this constitute a substantial burden on your free exercise of religion? And they said, yes, you know, and when we're put to the choice of facing $70 million in fines or complying with um, this mandate that goes against our conscience, that's, that's a pretty substantial burden. Right. So um, the Supreme Court did hear their case in early 2016, but it was right after Justice Scalia had passed away. So at that point, the high court had only eight members. Right. And so a lot of folks thought the court was kind of split four to four on what they were going to do with this accommodation. So what the court ended up doing was sending the Little Sisters and the other nonprofit cases back to the lower courts. And they basically told the parties to try to come up with a solution that pleased both sides. Yeah, I was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit, because that, that's something that I've always been not, I've always had some question about. What, what was the court's, was the court's response a victory for Little Sisters of the Poor, or was the court kind of punting it back to the lower courts? I think it's a little bit of both because um, what the court did, which was important, was there were a number of adverse decisions to the nonprofits at that time. Uh, a number of the lower courts had held in favor of HHS uh, regarding the accommodation, okay. and the court wiped out those adverse rulings. And so that was very helpful because then the nonprofits were not worried about the mandate suddenly you know, the next day being enforced against them. And so that was helpful that the court um, vacated those lower court decisions that were, that had gone the wrong way um, for the religious objectors. Um, however, you know, it's true, like you say, that the court did punt the issue to kind of another day and push it back to the lower courts and push it back to the parties to try to negotiate and come up with some kind of solution around this dilemma um, and so uh, we've had those negotiations going on between the federal government and the nonprofits like the Little Sisters for um, close to two years now, since May of 2016, when the Supreme Court issued that, that order directing the parties to go back to the drawing board, essentially. Have there been any results of these 
of these negotiations, or is there any is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Yes, it's been kind of interesting because we had, of course, a presidential election in the midst of this um, the last two years, and so that changed the dynamic, of course, at HHS and the rest of the federal government. And so, um, so actually, we did see a few months ago um, last year we saw a settlement between the Department of Justice, uh, which represents the federal government in in legal matters and several of the diocesan um, entities that had sued. Um, so, so a number of those did come to a settlement with, with the federal government, um, you know, to not enforce the mandate against them. Um, so we, we did see that positive development, but we also um, have, there are still a number of entities that have not uh, been able to settle with the federal government. So it's kind of a mixed bag at this point where there's been some progress made, but maybe not um, not completely. And of course, in the midst of all that, we had a new um, regulation issued in October. So that once again changed the dynamic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great segue into, the, into my next question. So this past fall, this past October, the Trump administration issued an interim final rule that offered a moral and religious exemption to organizations from the mandate. So um, with that, what does the exemption say and to whom does it apply? So the exemption is available to both for-profit as well as non-profit entities, and it is an expanded religious as well as a moral exemption to the mandate. So if you have sincerely held um, religious or moral objections to um, contraceptive coverage, then you can take advantage of this um, this broadened exemption. And the only um, entity that it would not apply to is a publicly traded corporation um, cannot take advantage of the moral exemption. However, HHS leaves open the possibility of them taking advantage of a religious exemption if there's some... <laughs> for-profit, um, publicly traded corporation that all their shareholders can agree that they are, have a, a religious uh, objection to something, then they would theoretically be able to um, take advantage of the new exemption. But HHS said that they were not aware of any um, that, that had expressed such an objection, and they didn't really expect any to, but they thought they would allow them to if there were any that that did exist. But basically, it is a pretty broad scope of entities that can take advantage of that expanded exemption. Yeah, I'd like to be a fly on the wall at that shareholder meeting where they uh, where they discuss a religious exemption too. That would be Absolutely. funny. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's not outside of the realm of possibility, right? I guess, when we have corporations that you know adhere to different. Um, values and, um, you know, they're trying to have conscientious capitalism and those kinds of things. So you just never know. You never know. Just a, just a point of clarification, does the, the, the Trump uh, administration's interim final rule, does that exemption apply to the accommodation only or to the mandate as a whole? So the, it, the moral and, and religious exemption applies to the mandate as a whole. Now, the accommodation is still available for those who wish to take advantage of it. So there may be some employers that HHS indicates um, that might be doing the accommodation 
now um, and they would be able to continue doing that. So they didn't take that option away, but they said, you know, if you um, would like the full exemption, then that's available too. So, um, so that's obviously much better to have choices, um, you know, to be able to uh, take advantage of that full exemption. Okay. So in, I believe it was in December of 2017, uh, two judges have issued injunctions against the Trump administration's interim final rule. So I was wondering if we could talk about that. What, what did the judges rule? And so what, and what's the status of the exemption? Yes, yeah, so um, in response to the Trump administration issuing this broader moral and religious exemption to the mandate, several states, um, including California and Pennsylvania, as well as um, several, um, I would describe them as pro-abortion advocacy groups, um, mm-hmm. a, a number of entities sued the federal government. So they sued HHS and claimed that this expanded exemption somehow violates the U.S. Constitution. Um, they also made some procedural claims. What they said was that the was that HHS should have um, listened to comments from the general public first before they issued the new regulations with expanded exemptions. So they said they should have done a notice and comment period before issuing the this rule that became effective immediately upon publication. So um, so they're making some procedural arguments. And so these California and Pennsylvania judges in two of the cases uh, agreed with the states and they issued injunctions against HHS um, from enforcing the new rules and allowing the expanded exemption. However, um, it doesn't affect the cases that are still um, pending and those those entities that do currently have injunctions against enforcement from Mm -hmm. the old mandate. So they still get their exemptions, but it's just that the expanded religious and moral exemption is now in limbo. And so what I would expect is that we're going to see some appeals brought in the next few weeks, hopefully. And I think these cases will probably end up once again, um, before the Supreme Supreme court. Court, Right. Do you think, uh, whether the the Little Sisters of the Poor case and the Hobby Lobby case, um, are these positive, and I use this term very lightly, but are they positive precedents in the sense of hopefully getting, you know, a decision in favor of religious liberty from the court? I think they are very helpful precedents. And, um, you know, to, to say that, um, for example, the for-profit entities can have religious uh, claims, uh, you know, that they can bring their claims in federal court. That just allows them that possibility. That, um, and just with the, the uh, Supreme Court stating that this constituted a substantial burden on religious exercise, um, it would be very difficult for the parties to who are suing against HHS now um, to get around to get around that basically, and we also have HHS has admitted um, in the October regulations that the original regulations violated the Religious Freedom right. Restoration Act. So you have the federal government agreeing with the parties that. So it's kind of an unusual situation where you have 
um, folks agreeing that these the, that the mandate violated um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So I think it's going to be an uphill climb for those who are challenging this expanded religious and moral exemption um, because the federal government is free to provide more religious liberty, um, you know, than maybe it even has to. Um, they're trying to, you know, trying to find a way to, you know, I, I hate to use the word accommodate, but to to just find, find a way to, um, you know, have these religious, these faith-based groups exist in society and not be forced to um, to participate in something that goes against their conscience. So I think we should be encouraging the federal government to do that. What do you think will happen if there's a new administration, let's say um, in 2020, um, President Trump is, is defeated and a new, essentially a democratic um, administration comes in and tries to reestablish the mandate and everything else. Is, is that a possibility or do you think that the legal actions that have happened so far would either preclude that or at least, um, at least soften the blow? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how the court cases go um, with these, you know, challenges to the expanded exemption. But um, I think the the states of California and Pennsylvania, for example, they, they have an uphill battle and I think they will, um, God willing, get adverse rulings against them and rulings that favor, you know, broad religious exercise in our country. And so I think, you know, we'll, we'll start to see some of those opinions come out in the next few months um, and maybe in the next couple of years, even if it does land before the Supreme Court again. But I'm optimistic that we will have helpful rulings from the federal courts that respect religious exercise because we have such a long tradition of that. I mean, if, if, these, um, if California and Pennsylvania get their way, then it would really throw the whole system of, um, of religious um, exemptions into, into a tailspin. I mean, we've had uh, moral and religious, uh, you know, conscientious objection to abortion, for example, right. since Roe v. Wade. Right. And so we've had decades of Congress protecting that. If all of a sudden that's deemed to violate the U.S. Constitution, then um, we've got much bigger problems. Exactly. So, um, so God willing, these cases will will go well before the the appellate courts, and then um, you know we won't see this type of coercive mandate impl implemented again in the future. You sort of already answered this question, but looking into your crystal ball, um, what do you think the future? is of the HHS mandate and the accommodation, as well as the, UCC, uh, the USCCBs and other organizations' opposition to them? I think, um, I think the future is optimistic just because I think, you know, we have these, um, these very solid, the, the very solid court ruling um, in the Hobby Lobby case, and I think the Supreme Court is going to be inclined to, you know, um, to go in that same direction and, and uphold religious freedom and, uh, and free exercise. So I'm optimistic just because we have these pretty recent um, helpful rulings from the court. I, I think the court doesn't want to um, burden, 
you know, religious objectors, just given our country's long tradition of respecting uh, people of faith and their ability to, you know, exist in society. And we live in a pluralistic society. So, um, you know, so, and at least in the short term, we have an administration that, um, you know, seems to want to protect the um, religious objectors by issuing, I think, very well-reasoned regulations that, that they published in October. And so, um, so the administration does want to protect religious exercise. And um, so I think if we, if we continue to see good court rulings, then at least the short-term future is, is pretty optimistic. Uh, of course, we have a broader challenge with our culture of um, explaining, you know, our objections to uh, these kinds of drugs and devices that are so harmful. And so um, that's, to me, the broader challenge is, um, you know, educating the culture about the harms of contraception and abortion-inducing drugs and devices and, and abortion, period. Um, so I think that's where our greater challenge lies, is in evangelizing um, the public. Very good. Hillary, thank you very much. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.